Heavenly Father, it's with the powerful reminder of that song that we come before your presence in prayer this morning. Before we open your word, we pray that you would open our hearts by reminding us of the wretchedness of our sin and the saving power of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior's precious blood. I pray that we would be drawn into your presence, Lord, with overflowing hearts of gladness, beholding your glorious your glorious power to save revealed in the cross this morning. I pray that you would shore up foundation stones that may have slipped, Lord, upon the cares of life, that may have grown weaker, Lord, in well-doing. I pray that your word would prove a buttress in truth, a strength, a refuge, Lord, a reinforcing mortar for our soul's anchor today to ground us, to root us in the truth, to establish us, Lord Jesus, in our faith that we might proclaim boldly, Lord, and with clarity, the power of Jesus Christ's own blood to ransom sinners from certain death, hell, destruction, unto salvation, newness of life, and rejoicing in the obedience of the faith among the nations, testifying to the power of Jesus Christ to redeem and to restore. I pray this morning as we open your holy word that you would draw our attention to its value, that we would love it, Lord, even as we would be diligent to proclaim it after your spirit illuminates it to our heart. We pray that you would do this, Lord Jesus, among us, not for our glory, but for your great name. I pray that we would take so seriously and soberly, God, our calling to represent you to a world that is lost and dying. Help us, would you, Holy Spirit, through the use of your great means to make visible the kingdom of God, to enthrone upon our praises and upon our proclamation, Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you for this morning that you have prepared an eternity past as a gift for us to behold Lord Jesus and to be changed by your word. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a glorious privilege it is this morning to worship the Lord together and to open His Holy Word. I would invite you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1 this morning. The opening 11 verses of this second epistle of Peter will provide for us our text this morning under a title called Election Confirmation. Election Confirmation. This morning is a standalone message for us as a church and I hope that in the spirit of the message, the powerful words that were delivered by the Apostle to this church of old, we would hear them with the same intensity and importance that they were delivered. That we might benefit from them this morning as we bow our hearts before God's unchangeable and holy word. So stand with me, if you would, with your Bible open to 2 Peter chapter 1. And let us read these opening 11 verses together. Follow me as we read the holy word of God. It says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious 
and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. The individual, that is our personal salvation, and the corporate, that is us as a gathered assembly of the believers, the church of Jesus Christ, the individual and corporate implications of this message of Peter, which is thematic to the second epistle, and also underscores themes from 1 Peter, are of utmost importance. Utmost importance for the church, timeless. Not just in Peter's day, but in our day, do we need these instructions. The instructions of this epistle are necessary. They're absolutely essential for the sustainable church. The church will fizzle, fade, flame out if it does not hold to the very essence of her longevity, rejuvenation, and maintenance. The sustainable church and the assurance of our individual salvation are in view here. It is the aim of the apostle, therefore, in this instruction to shore up the church beyond his own life and influence, thus that she might continue healthy with an immune system strong to exercise the, anti or the, uh, the things that would fight against the viruses of false teaching, waywardness, sensuality, sin, distraction, uh, things that look shiny on the surface but in the end reap corruption. It is the purpose of the apostle, therefore, through these words, timeless and direct as they are, to ensure that the church would live longer than he would. And we see in the context he didn't expect to live very long. The value of these truths is therefore illustrated well in the personal note of context provided by the author. author notice a few verses beyond what we've read, 13 and 14. The apostle says, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that putting off my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So it is that our author writes as if he were on his proverbial deathbed because though he knows not exactly the number of his days, the Lord has revealed to him that they are indeed short. Therefore, he has carefully chosen last words, carefully chosen his last words to his closest family members. These words are underscored not just with the importance when we consider that he doesn't have much time left. This may be his last letter to his church, 
that he is responsible for shepherding. Not just that, but he also underscores them with objective qualification. Notice again in the context as we continue to read 2 Peter 1, 16. says, for we, and at this point he associates himself with the other eyewitness apostles. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. That is another term, circumlocution if you will, speaking around but not directly to God the Father. The celestial voice affirming, this is my son in whom I am well pleased is referred to here as the majestic glory. And the apostle says, I heard it, I heard that voice from heaven with my own ears. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is why you should take seriously now my words that I give you. He goes on. He adds a superlative note to this objective qualification. In verse 19 he says, And we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. You know what is more powerful than seeing with your own eyes the transfigured Christ? Do you know what is more powerful and sound than hearing with your own ears the attestation from glory? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It is the words that we opened our service reading to you today. How would you feel if you were on that mount? And suddenly before your unsuspecting eyes, the refulgence, the glory, the manifest majesty of God the Father reflected through His Son began to blind your eyes. And your ears were booming with the thunderstorm of the voice of God the Father echoing from the heavens. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Would you listen? Would you pay attention? Would you check the messages on your iPhone? Would you finish your game of Angry Birds? No, suddenly all these things that are so trivial are magnified in their triviality when we realize the perspective that that moment would bring. Well, our author this morning says we have something even more powerful and is the Word of God before us today. These words of legacy are meant as a stirring reminder. There is an intention that is restated at least twice with this kind of language. I want to stir you up, verse 13, by way of reminder. Later on in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the author communicates with urgency again in similar language that he wants to be a motive force. He wants to spur them on to good works. He says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder in chapter 3, verse 1, that you should remember the predictions. Again, he's appealing to the Word of God, the Word of God that they had in their heart through the delivery of the apostolic imperative and the Word of God that we hold in our hands today says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. This is the kind of intensity, directive, and context that this truth is packaged in. I don't know if you remember, I'm sure if you were here you won't forget it soon, but there was a car accident just on the corner here a few months ago. Those of you who went down there and responded right away, came face to face with the mortality of the human condition. There was a woman who passed away in that accident. And there were those of us in this church who stood praying 
And we experienced firsthand the vapor that is our life. I'd like you to imagine with me, if you will, a moment like that with a very close relative. Imagine a close relative who has slipped into a coma and you're there in the hospital room. You're sitting by their bedside. And it's been some days and all you've done is you've prayed and you've said things like the memories that you appreciate and the love that you wish to convey, but they are unresponsive. Not so much a blink, not so much as a wiggle, not so much as a smile or a nod. And there you are. You don't know how much longer this relative has to live. You see the pulse on the monitor growing weaker, weaker by the hour. And suddenly eyelids flutter. There is a stirring. And you call to the nurse to gather the family from the lobby. Everyone gathers. And for a brief moment, this relative has a second wind. He is able or she is able to gather all her strength and to speak. I have something to tell you. Listen to me. How closely would you listen to that voice? I'm sure you would hear a pin drop in that room. I'm sure you and I would never forget those last words that that dying, precious relative would tell us in those moments. Suddenly all the busyness, all the distractions of life are easily pushed aside and our perspective is drawn fully and completely on the importance of the moment. This is exactly the perspective that the author would have us hear his words. He says, since I know that putting off my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus made clear to me. So with that context and with that introduction, let us hear the word of God today. Let us hear how the author under this heading gives us perhaps three points this morning, assured calling and election. Our author is speaking to assurance, a surety of calling and election. Remember this powerful phrase. He says in verse 8, The promise upon reflection and obedience to this instruction is that when these qualities attend your faith, they will keep you, in verse 8, from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted he is blind, having forgotten that he is cleansed, cleansed from his former sins. And notice verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. If there was ever a question we could have answered, how can I be sure of my calling and my election? I cannot think of a more pressing concern in the life of a believer than that one. And so by priority concern, our author addresses it directly. And he addresses it in three ways. He addresses assured calling and election in its essence, and secondly, in experience, the experience of the believer, and thirdly, in its effect, how it will fortify us, encourage, and strengthen, embolden, and provide armor against the attacks of the enemy. Therefore, assured calling and election in essence, experience, and effect are a message we must hear if we are to pay close attention to words of most importance and priority today. Let us consider first the essence of our calling and election. The essence that is delivered to us in First Peter, uh, Second Peter, excuse me, chapter one, verses one through four. Reading again, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pause at that note and consider this. 
the reason that the church will continue and has continued two millennia after these words were written or so is because the quality of your faith, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, and the quality that the author trusts is his hearers is the same faith that he had. There is an apostolic quality of faith that is universal to all believers. The same faith, the same confession, the same assurance that the initial wave of eyewitness apostles had upon receiving the message of God's truth delivered to them as by angels, as by the incarnate God in flesh, Jesus Christ, the living word, as by the corroborating evidence of miracles performed by our Savior, the faith that was stirred by those means is stirred in your heart and my heart through, yes, different means, but the same Holy Spirit and to the same effect. The power of the Holy Spirit to grant you the gift of faith and to establish you in the surety of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, sufficient payment for sins, securing you unto eternal life is as powerful and real, given the means of the Holy Spirit as it was for the Apostle Peter or any other first-generation Christian and eyewitness. This is incredible. There is, historically speaking, even as the word prophesied it so, it would be so, there is an unparalleled tenacity of Christian faith and doctrine. You cannot stamp out this religion, if you will. You cannot stamp out true faith. And history has recorded those who have tried. Those who could spare no expense, who would spare no expense, who did spare no earthly means to stamp out the message and the testimony of Jesus Christ, born in time, God in flesh, crucified for sinners. We think of the history of the church and how she has survived by the sovereign providential keeping power of Christ alone. It's the only way that you can explain it. When all of the state governments and swords are turned against the believer. When the Christian who is so bold just to say Jesus is Lord over Caesar becomes food for ravenous beasts in the arenas of ancient Rome. How is it that this faith has survived? This faith has survived because it is of supernatural quality. The author says that this faith will survive not because of the will and the schemes of man. He says in verse 16, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, yet innumerable cleverly devised myths have been perpetrated and invented to slaughter the faith of Jesus Christ and everyone has proved unsuccessful. In the beginning... Those, if they wanted to design something by the mere hand of man to perpetuate a religion, might have done it differently. They might have set up the most important and the most influential as the figureheads of that religion. Perhaps a rich young ruler would be commissioned to be the flagship for this new faith. Not the weak, the lowly, the leper, the discarded, the prostitute, the sinner, the wayward, the diseased, the epileptic, and, the, and, and those who are beset with all kinds of socially deplorable sins. That God invents, God has declared that this truth and His power and His might would continue and this would not be the will and work of men. This is a great hope for us. 
It tells us that yes, there is a responsibility and there is a working as an effect of the call and the gospel, but ultimately this is the works prepared and beforehand in advance for us to walk in. That is to say, if we are to continue assured in our calling and election, it will not be through cleverly devised myths of our own salvation, of our own works that we design and that we fulfill in our own strength. It will be by the sovereign means that God employs. Look at the false religions that are falling around us like so much fodder for the waste bin of history. This last week or maybe two ago, the Mormon church revealed a picture of the seer stone. This is the most ridiculous piece of chicanery that I can even imagine. And yet a whole religion was built on this kind of foolishness. A small pebble was found in a well by a man named Joseph Smith and he bamboozled people through cleverly designed myths and he said that if he would look into that stone and cover his, uh, you put it in his hat, cover his face with that hat, that he could find buried treasure and the like. And he said by that means he had a revelation and he spent years translating this completely fabricated story of the angel Moroni giving him certain texts. Well, this foolishness was enough to convince and to lead astray thousands and thousands and to this day thousands of people who are following a man who appealed to a smooth stone polished in a stream about this big among billions on this earth? You see how easily deceived and gullible the human mind is? Do you see how stupid and really unimaginative man is in constructing idols and vain imaginations to convince himself and others that God does not exist? We need not fear such things if we fear our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the word that was delivered to us came by eyewitnesses. And it was attested, to, it was attested by the prophetic word that has endured to this day. And therefore, the objective quality of our faith, as we read it here in Scripture, and as the Holy Spirit has written on your heart, is one that will endure if you but hold on to Christ. This is the essence of the surety of our calling and election, that the quality of our faith is on the quality, is based upon the quality of Christ's sovereign work. That leads me to point to under essence, supernatural cause. Let's read verses 3 and 4. It says, His divine power, that is Christ's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. The assurance of your calling and election believer is based upon a supernatural cause. There is a divine source. There is a divinity that we participate in that is amazing and mysterious indeed. And there is a ground of our salvation and even our works that is declared here in the sovereignty of God. Verse 3 says it is His divine power that has granted to us all things that pertain to life, that zoe life, that supernatural superabundance of life eternal that is the surety of all who are in Christ. 
That is, all who in their union with Christ have become partakers of the divine nature. And this partaking of the divine nature and this divine Zoe life is evident in godliness. Thus, we see in the Scriptures clearly that all these things, the fruit that attends the way of the convicted sinner who bears the fruit of repentance, owes it all to a divine, to a supernatural cause, the source, the participation, union with Christ, and the ground of his obedience has as its source nothing in himself, but entirely external to him, the sovereign work of the triune God. The scriptures say, and Second Peter echoes, salvation belongs to the Lord. Divine calling and election, like all things pertaining to life and godliness, are the result They are the result of His divine power. And so assurance and calling and election, in essence, the author reminds us, 2 Peter, of its apostolic quality, its supernatural cause. And thirdly, let me note a complementary pattern, a complementary pattern of spiritual realities in this text. And this will provide a transition point to our second major point from essence to experience. In other words, there are things that we experience based upon the essence of our faith, and they are manifold, and there are virtues and qualities that the author identifies in sevenfold reference in verses 5 through 7. But before we get there, let us note his use of a complementary pairing of spiritual realities. Going back through the text, as we've read thus far, notice in verse 1, he says, "...to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours..." By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our God and Savior. There's a conjunction in the Greek there. and shows up in our English language, and. It's chi in Greek. It joins two truths together in one reality. Jesus is God and Jesus is Savior. This use of this conjunctive, chi, to join two two, uh, truths together in the same reality is a pattern in the text. We continue to read. It says in verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. The reality of the spiritual condition of the believer is two truths tongue together, are conjoined together in the same reality, grace and peace we have with the Lord. Again, we see this complementary pattern in the text. It says, His divine power, verse 3, has granted to us all things that pertain to life, chi, or and, godliness. Life and godliness, two truths brought together, complementary truths in the same reality for the believer. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, yet another pairing in the reality of the believer. We behold in salvation the glory and the excellence or virtues of Christ. It goes on throughout the text. This is a pattern. There's calling and election. There's Lord and Savior added to these that we've already listed. And just, here's the message. Just as all of these go hand in hand, so does your faith, the essence of your faith, and the supplements or virtues that Peter identifies as we continue to read. Notice as he has delivered the supernatural nature and the sovereignty of God related to our faith in verses 1 through 4, there is a phrase that transitions us to application. 
It says in 3b, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. And then there's the list, virtue, knowledge, self-control, and so on. There is a complementary pattern identified here. That is, again, in summary, just as Savior and God go together in Christ. Just as grace and peace go together for the promise of the believer. Just as life and godliness go together in the expectation of the fruit of our salvation. Just as Christ is both glorious and excellent, His attributes display His worth. Just as calling and election go together for us and our experience preserved unto salvation. Just as Jesus is both Lord and Savior, verse 11, the eternal kingdom of our Lord, Kurios, the ultimate authority and Savior, Messiah, the one who satisfied uh, the need for our salvation, the propitiation for our sins, Jesus Christ. Just as all those go together, so does the essence of our salvation and the fruit. For this very reason, our author says, make every effort to supplement your faith. In other words, since you have faith as a sovereign gift of God, make every effort to stir that faith up, to supplement that faith. This is a message that reminds us of the book of James. This truth of Scripture, faith without works is, in essence, no faith at all. Faith without works is dead. We've used this analogy before that faith is the root and the fruit is the effect of faith, the works, the obedience, the virtues that we walk in. The appeal, the appeal to our will to be engaged in our effort to work is grounded upon God giving us the very grace, the very source, the very means in the first place. And thus, we have our second point this morning, assured calling and election in our experience. We've seen it in essence, now let's behold it in the experience of a believer. First of all, and most completely under this point, let us consider manifold qualities. Verses 8 and 9, the author refers to these previous seven virtues, if you will, as qualities. He says, for if these qualities are yours and increasing... They will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. He says in verse 9, Forever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. So what are these qualities to which he refers? Well, I submit to you in the context, there are also the things, among the things, pertaining to life and godliness in verse 3. And here we have them briefly, and then we'll explore them in just a bit more depth. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. These are the seven fortifying supplements, if you will, in the experience of the believer that, are, that go hand in hand with our calling and election. And the author seeks to stir these up in the church and through his word to stir them up in the church for all time. First of all, virtue. Virtue, arete, is the same word that is used actually earlier in verse 3 of Jesus Christ. It says, to His own glory and excellence. Uh, through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. His glory refers to the incredible majesty of who He is. The shining forth, if you will, of Himself. 
the fame and the renown of him. The excellence there is the same word for virtue in verse 5. And that refers to that which is of his constitution, substance, and essence. That which makes Christ truly praiseworthy, glorious, and beautiful. So our author says, those things that make Christ praiseworthy and beautiful, make every effort to supplement your faith with those things. The virtues. Uh, We go on to add some words within the semantic domain, if you will, or the definition that we find from comparing this words used throughout Scripture. What is virtue? It's moral vigor. It's excellence. It's perfections. It's goodness. It's gracious acts. It's uprightness. We call to your attention a great cross-reference, Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, brothers, maybe some of you have memorized this in the past. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's anything praiseworthy, anything of excellence, that term again, excellence, sometimes is translated the same Greek word again, arete, is sometimes translated virtue, other times excellence. So true, uh, truth, honorableness, justice, purity, loveliness, whatever is commendable, whatever is virtuous, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise, think on these things. Supplement, fortify your faith with these. This is, in the experience of the believer, an assuring mechanism. Supplement your faith with these. If you do so, you will be fruitful and effective. Secondly, second virtue, knowledge. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. The Greek word here is gnosis. And this is a little different than the knowledge that he has previously referred to. In verse 3 he says, things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Backing up one more verse, verse 2, may, the grace and peace be multi- may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Twice he refers to knowledge there, but it's a little different term. It's epignosis. And in that sense, the knowledge that is the essence, that attends the essence of our assurance, calling, and election is the formal attestation. It's the belief that God is who He says He is. This is distinct from the knowledge that we see in the list of virtues. One is the ethical absolute, and the other is the application. In other words, add to your formal understanding of God the practical application. If God really exists, how then ought we live? This is what the author is asking his hearers to add to their faith. God came in flesh. Grace and peace through this reality is multiplied to you because Christ is Theos, God and Savior. He has, the, and this knowledge of God, His divine power has granted you all things that pertain to life and godliness. How ought that affect your daily life? How ought that insulate you from the jeers and the mockery of others? How would that fortify you against the fear of what might lie around the corner? How would that, that strengthen you 
to endure or to proclaim excitedly and boldly your faith. This is the kind of knowledge that we are to add, to stir, to see in our experience. Add to your formal knowledge that God exists, the practical knowledge that this is how I live then in light of that truth. Thirdly, manifold qualities. Uh, Self-control. Self-control is listed, number three in in this uh, catalog, it says, and knowledge and self-control, and with self-control, steadfastness, and just a brief mention in verse five there, in verse six, excuse me, and this is probably fairly obvious, a self-mastery or self-restraint, a dominion within. It is notable, however, by cross-reference, perhaps on your own time, you could go to Galatians 5, especially verse 23, and you'll see there that what Peter refers to here as a supplemental means to stir up our, uh, our faith, if you will, is also a fruit of the Spirit, listed as a fruit of the Spirit by Paul in Galatians 5. This dominion within, this self-control, this self-restraint, this greater governance of ourselves in light of the truth and faith that God governs all is evidence of a believer's changing life. And it is the assuring experience of those who are called and elected. Fourthly this morning, steadfastness. Uh, This word refers to an unswavering, deliberate purpose, a loyalty, a faith, a piety that is a motive toward holiness that is engendered uh, or that is uh, only greatly increased in the face of trial and suffering. There is this longing, this yearning, this anguish, this hope for the return of Christ, for instance, in the Word of God. 2 Thessalonians 3.5, Revelation 1.9, there is this uh, sort of pathos and pain, this anguish, this cry, this desire, this yearning that the authors have, that the apostles convey to their audience, to their people, to their congregations. Have a steadfastness, a tenacity, a desire, a certain disconnect, a certain discontent with what this life says is satisfying and fulfilling. Let there be a steadfastness of soul that makes you cry out with the last words of Scripture, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. If you are under weight and burden and trial and anguish today, let it move you to cry out, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. This is this pained, anguished, longing desire, this reaching for the hope and faith and joy that only the next life where the manifold gifts and callings of God are fully manifest in the life and the experience of a believer are a reality for us. Add to your faith, believer, that quality. In the times of difficulty and in the times of blessing, don't lose that tenacious zeal, that holdfastness, that grip and that earnestness on Christ. Fifthly, this morning, Our author exhorts us in our experience to nurture godliness, Eusebia, the inner devotional response to things of God. 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12, again, just some cross-references to give us an idea of what our author is driving at here. But as for you, we read 1 Timothy 6, 11, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, Godliness, there's that word, 
faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you were made. You made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. There are two things by summary category I submit to you that threaten this kind of tenacious zeal that the believer is called to have and this kind of motive and drive and value and passion for godliness. One, they are the easiness of life. They are the promises in this side of glory. They are the carnal distractions. And secondly, they are the weighty trials. In both of these, do not lose your focus, neither to be lulled asleep by the luxury of life, nor to be utterly discouraged by the pains of life. But instead, as a man of God, as for you, believer, put yourself in the shoes of Timothy and hear this admonition, flee those things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Sixthly, this morning, brotherly affection. The last two categories in the experience of a believer I would submit to you with the pattern of other portions of Scripture, two references that will attest to this. Romans 5, 1 through 5, which Joel read this morning. And also 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a familiar chapter to all of us. These represent the apex or a growth or a crescendo, a goal in the growth and maturity of a believer. First of all, brotherly affection. This is the term Philadelphia, a word we're all familiar with. But in the Greek, it's a kind of love. It's a specific kind of affection. And I want to cross-reference this with drawing your attention to the sixth sixth of seven churches referred to in the beginning of Revelation. Do you remember the name of the sixth church? It shares the term that Peter uses here, Philadelphia. That church was identified in the opening of the revelation of John as the church of brotherly love, if you will. There is a family connection unique to the experience of the believer that only those who are in Christ can share. You have a connection to the believer sitting next to you that you do not and will not, unless they repent, share with your own blood family members. This is underscored twice in this passage of virtues. Recall, remember, in the book of Revelation, that is the one church, the church of Philadelphia, that does not get a direct rebuke from Jesus Christ. All the other churches were rebuked. And could it be said that the maturity of that church was marked by their identity in that revelation as ascending to and listening to the apostolic message to add to their faith the brotherly affection that would set them apart from the wiles of the devil and bind them together as a family so that those bonds give them the resistance to stand in the day of adversity. Finally, this morning, the quality that we are to add to our faith is love. This is the agape love of Scripture. Turn with me to 1 Peter, the initial epistle, uh, chapter 1. Because here in this epistle, both words as they appear in the Greek, Philadelphia and agape, brotherly love and uniquely Christian love appear in the text. 1 Peter 1, verses 22 and 23. says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, For a sincere Philadelphia, 
for a sincere brotherly love. Brotherly love. Love one another, that is agape one another, earnestly from a pure heart. Since, notice it's the same ground, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with Philadelphia, with agape, with brotherly affection, and with love. It is the same echo from a prior epistle. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, since that is true, purify your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere Philadelphia brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. How does the enemy destroy a doctrinally sound church? We must be more than doctrinally sound, yet we must be doctrinally sound. The enemy can destroy a doctrinally sound church if he can come in and destroy the Philadelphia and the agape. He may not get us from the outside. We may scoff till our death at the seer stone in the hat of the charlatan leading millions astray by the tomfoolery of magic. But if we do not have love, we are but a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. We are not sufficient to stand without what the Bible identifies as uniquely Christian love. In this day and age, church, Providence, this local body, is stepping into a firestorm of adversity. You would have to be blind, and utterly naive, or just totally deceived not to see it. How can we stand? That fearful thought crosses our minds often, does it not? In a culture, in a society, when laws are passed and the ire is raised and the persecutions come, how will a church stand faithful when it seems like day after day more are coalescing around the devil's plan to sift, to destroy, to winnow, and to totally render irrelevant Christ's holy church? The only way to stand is to stand uncompromisingly on the truth of God and to let that truth inform, infuse, enable, animate our love for God and one another. When we do this, saints, the enemy's best attempts will, to destroy us will only serve as an elevated stage to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. Against the backdrop of this darkness, thick, with the demonic reprobation and apostasy that we see all around us, the light will shine forth with the heralding righteousness of Jesus Christ who died for sinners. But it will only happen when they see our love for one another. And they understand that the way we interact can only be described as the unconditional love of a functional, faithful, committed, repentant, steadfast family. This is our charge. This is our charge indeed. Under experience, 
I mentioned to you that other places in Scripture mark Christian love as a sort of high watermark or trajectory for maturity. And I would submit to you it certainly is. Paul longed and yearned that the petty discrepancies and grievances would be washed away and the all-consuming love of Jesus Christ. And the author of Peter's, uh, God, or Peter's epistle yearns for the same. Peter writes, he says, Whoever lacks these qualities, back up verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed by former sins. There is an incredible fortifying effect that Christian maturity brings to the church. It will prove, it will prepare us to be effective and fruitful for the kingdom of God. The enemy's chief weapon against us will be disarmed before us. Not only will he be disarmed, but he will rock back reeling on his heels because the church will take ground for the kingdom and his gates, his hellish gates, will not stand against it. But it requires church. It necessitates gospel eyesight, if you will. If we forget the virtuous things of God, if we get, forget the knowledge, the application of the formal truth, if we get, forget self-control, if it does not occur to us to be steadfastness, if we slip in our value of godliness, if we do not nurture and display brotherly affection and agape love, why? Why do we do so? It's because we have been so nearsighted. Indeed, we are effectively blind because we have forgotten that we were cleansed from our former sins. I'm giving you a lot of information this, this morning, but there's just one phrase that you need to take away this morning to, get, to plant the seed that would blossom into the fruit that Peter unpacks in his epistle. And that seed is this, remember you were cleansed from your former sins. We will remember that next communion. We ought to remember it every Lord's Day. Every morning, the first thought on your mind ought to be, if you can at all nurture it to be a pattern and habit for you, I was a wretch, but the blood of Christ has washed me clean. A man freshly pulled out of the icy waters around the sinking Titanic does not care about the meager conditions of the boat. He doesn't care that it's small and crowded. He doesn't care that a child is crying next to him. He doesn't even care that somebody is angry and hurt because he has just lost his wife to the icy waves. A man who has just been pulled and rescued is set in that boat, clings to that meager means of salvation with all his heart, and for him it might as well be a cruise ship. He might as well be relaxing on an all-expense-paid trip to the Bahamas. Why? Because he knows that he was saved from certain death. Brothers and sisters, in this little gathering, we can't boast too many amenities. This is no cruise ship. This is a life raft with suffering saints alongside us. For some who have been freshly rescued from the icy cold. Some who suffer a long-term effects from the worldliness they have left behind or from the old life and the way the enemy tried to sift us like we. Yet, we are called 
to remain as those freshly saved so that our perspective will endure with one another no matter how long our path is from the sinking Titanic to the welcoming shore of glory. Let us show brotherly affection and let us show love on that boat as we travel from here to there. Now, this is very serious. If we haven't seen the seriousness of it, to some degree already, it's only emphasized as we continue to read the epistle. There are snapshots, there are photographs of the fallout when these things are missing. The author, uh, our author writes, Peter says in chapter 2, 1 and 2, that the sensuality of destructive heresies where others will, and, and this church will blaspheme the way of truth, will soon rush in if the dike is not secured, if the barrier is not assured against the corrupting influence of the enemy by these virtues, by these qualities being added to their faith. Also in chapter 2, verse 20, there is the prophecy that they will become entangled and overcome by defilements of the world. And those things that they formerly escaped through the knowledge of Christ will become besetting for them once again. It says that there is scoffing of prophecies and a total denial and a turning it back on the commandments of the word motivated by sinful desires will be their experience if they do not heed these words of admonition. That's in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, there are those who so blinded because they have not followed the way that he has prescribed here that they will deliberately overlook creation and final judgment, turn their back, that is, in the cardinal doctrines of the faith. There are those in 3.16 who will then lawlessly derail their own stability by twisting the word of God to their own destruction. What is at stake? What is at stake this morning? All of these things and more. Yet let us close on a note of hope. If we follow these words, if we stake our future decisions on this prescription for repentance, what can we expect? Verse 10. Therefore, brothers... Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. You will never fall. What a promise. Verse 11. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the rich provision for those who pay attention to these words this morning. The glorious promise of entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This epistle comes to us this morning through a heralding messenger, beseeching the church in progress toward glory to stand fast, to be assured, to have a confirmation of election, the confirmation and certainty of their calling to be in their experience by demonstrating the fruits, godliness and repentance and sanctification. And as they do so, they will display the overcoming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ against all foes within and without. Let us close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, these words... Lord, as we read them, as we hear them, are truly a corrective measure for us who are so prone to wander. I pray, Lord, 
if the standard of righteousness displayed in your scriptures, Lord, when held up to where we have, Lord Jesus, exercise certain thoughts, decisions, attitudes, values. I pray, Lord, if we have fallen short in those areas, that we would find room in our heart for repentance this morning. Let us wake up tomorrow morning with these words ringing in our heart, in our ears, that we might be fortified against the enemy of our soul, but not just equipped to defend, but equipped to advance, to see the glory of Christ cover this earth as the waters cover the sea. As you work in us, your church, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. I pray that you would do this all by the power of your indwelling Holy Spirit for the glory of your great name and that you would complete the work that you've begun in all who name the name of Christ here until your soon return. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.